This is Disaster and Change, a podcast brought to you by the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne, Australia. Professor Janet McCalman is a Redmond Berry Distinguished Professor in the Melbourne School of Population Health, where she teaches and researches historical population health. For many years, she taught the university breadth subject called An Ecological History of Humanity. But as an historian, she is best known for her social histories of Melbourne life. I hope you enjoy her podcast titled In the Midst of Death, There's Life, Collapse and Recovery from the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. We're living through the greatest disruption of the post-war era, what is likely to be the defining historical period of our lives. And the disruptor is a piece of RNA surrounded by fat, a virus that human beings have never before encountered, a virus that ticks all the boxes for disaster. It is novel, it is highly contagious, it is transmitted by asymptomatic carriers, it attacks the critical interface between the lungs and the heart, suffocating the victim, it targets two important but different demographics, older people with existing comorbidities especially respiratory illness or diabetes, and younger healthy people who can develop the cytokine storm that killed so many in the last great pandemic, the so-called Spanish influenza of 1918-19. Here, the young person's immune system goes into overdrive, which can lead to organ failure. Overall, the virus, however, attacks and kills people whose immune systems have been undermined since birth, by inequality, by malnutrition, stress and unfairness. We have entered a very dark tunnel and the light of day, while it may be 12 months ahead in Australia, is more likely not to be seen for three years or more in the rest of the world. Even with a vaccine, there will be new waves of differing virulence with new deaths and lockdowns. As we make comparisons with the Spanish flu pandemic, we need to remember that much of its effect on the world is still unknown and unknowable. Estimates of the death toll ranged from 50 to more than 100 million. 12 million alone are estimated to have died in India. We also need to remind certain political leaders that the so-called Spanish influenza erupted first in America among the thousands of cornstalks or young rural men preparing to join the American forces for this great war. Yet, in many ways, what has befallen humankind is more akin to the outbreak of total war than a contagious disease as we've known them over the past hundred years. As with war, lives, plans, loves, businesses, careers, indeed a whole economy are put on hold. We are suddenly no longer in charge of our own lives and destinies. All our vulnerabilities are exposed, ones that normally are papered over by the pace of everyday life and the rapid exchanges of the cash economy and the credit card. At the mercy of this tiny virus, we suddenly have no protection other than the state, and the very same state that has been reviled, undermined, ridiculed and weakened by boosters and braggarts over the last half century. The boosters and braggarts are still with us, but even they have now been caught out by a force of nature. But we need to understand the nature of the challenge facing us. We were confronted, hurt and terrified by the bushfire disaster over this past summer. The climate emergency was upon us 
more viscerally than ever before. Sydney lost its summer to choking smoke. The glorious forests of the Great Dividing Range and Eastern Seaboard burnt with a ferocity never witnessed before. Lives were lost as were homes, businesses, communities and a billion native animals and creatures. The koalas screaming in agony horrified the entire world. This was not just another natural disaster. This was our global future burning before our eyes. And then came the virus. And it has shut down the world by shutting down the public and especially the irregular economies that daily feed and service most of the people of the planet. We should understand, I think, the virus as an ecological disaster, just like the climate emergency. They are not causally related. Rather, they are expressions of the same profound overburdening of the planet by anthropogenic excess. As historians, we can see this in the past, where a combination of hypertrophy by parasitic elites, rampant inequality and desperate populations pushing against ecological boundaries created a perfect storm. All that was needed was a trigger, a disruption, such as the Mongol hordes galloping at 100 miles a day across Central Asia, stirring up the underground rodents and then transporting Yersinii pestis, the plague bacillus, east and west. And the Mongols were rampaging because they had been running out of space for their herds. We don't know yet why the world warmed for the medieval warm period, but its effects were to expand the human population in Eurasia while shattering Amerindian societies in the Americas, particularly in what is now California. It was a period of economic and cultural growth in Europe, the expansion of urban life, the founding of universities, the building of great cathedrals, the accumulation of wealth for those able to trade, but at severe environmental cost as forests were consumed for building and fuel. Likewise, our recent viral enemies, HIV-AIDS, Ebola, SARS, MERS and now COVID-19, crossed to new human hosts when people desperate for new land or creatures to kill for food trespassed into wilderness areas with species that had never before interacted intimately with humans. If we go back to the 14th century, when the plague bacillus reached Caffa on the Black Sea in time for the fleeing Genoese invaders to take it back to Italy, the potential human hosts in Europe had been weakened by climatic disturbances and therefore damaged harvests and by famine. The human material was malnourished, ill-sheltered and exposed, exhausted by the relentless exactions of a greedy elite. In Europe, the arable land was running out and peasants were pushing into new landscapes with poor returns. A third of the European population was to perish in the Black Death and Christian Europe took on a new blackness, an obsession with sin, a conviction that the pestilence was divine punishment. Plague now became an integral part of human society. It would return regularly as soon as a new generation of susceptibles was large enough to host us. It is argued that the bubonic plague kept North Africa poverty-stricken and backward until the 20th century. At the other end of the Eurasian landmass, China was shattered by the Mongol invasion and their war, famine and plague cut the Chinese population by half. As the Reverend Thomas Malthus later argued, human population, when unchecked by premature death, grows geometrically, that is, exponentially. 
while the natural world of resources and food can grow only arithmetically. Equilibrium was possible only with the practice of sexual restraint without the assistance of preventive technologies, or what he called positive checks, that is, high infant mortality, war, famine and disease. Death for many was necessary to make life possible and comfortable for the few, and in the midst of life there was always death, above all for the very young. Old age was rare. Death was for the young. Parents expected to lose many of their children. This time we have already seen that the COVID-19 is selective about whom it kills. Certainly it kills communities who, for religious reasons, reject social distancing and quarantine, and it kills those who are in their last days. But in New York and Louisiana, it is killing poor blacks and Hispanics, and in the United Kingdom, black, Asian and minority ethnic groups, especially those who comprise 40% of the medical workforce. When it finally finds its way to the great slum cities of the world of South Asia, the Philippines, Indonesia, Mexico, Brazil, North Africa, and then on to smaller, marginal societies struggling with drought, famine and disease, let alone the 70 million displaced persons and refugees around the globe, then it will find its greatest human fuel. It hones in on both individual and social vulnerability. It finds every fault line in society. It lays bare the inequities of mean and inadequate welfare nets if they exist at all. The perilousness of casual gig labour in even the richest nations. The helplessness of the uninsured, the ununionized, the illegally immigrant. It lays bare all the shortcomings of investment in medical facilities and human capital. It exposes the fragility of even advanced economies like ours, which have outsourced essential services and manufacturing to overseas suppliers or to private market that is so competitive for price that it exploits its workers and shortchanges its clients, such as has happened with our NDIS. Thankfully, we have human adaptability and ingenuity on our side and vastly more capable human capital than ever before, so that hundreds of small and medium businesses are retooling and making medical equipment and protective gear. There is a lesson in this too. The social geographer James C. Scott has been one of the principal champions of irregular economies and local enterprise in poor countries. He has shown how vital that sector is to providing food and services in cities, towns and villages all over the world. One danger that lies ahead is that huge corporations that can house their operations in safe buildings, administer their stock with artificial intelligence and run it all from their home computer while looking out over the Pacific Ocean, that they will emerge from this crisis even more dominant than they are now. Do we want Amazon to sell us everything? Do we want Walmart as our model of society and the economy? Or do we want to see local shopkeepers recover their businesses and return? Do we want to encourage individual creativity and initiative? Do we want to be served by a talking human being rather than a machine? Huge corporations are resilient in a crisis like this for a time, but they are massive and slow to innovate and crushing to their employees and customers. They are not good for people. In their flash American way, they are just as oppressive as the old state-run enterprises of the Soviet Union. Malthus may have been mathematically correct, but he was morally wrong. 
and his baleful influence was invoked in the Irish famine of the 1840s to stall and deny adequate famine relief, while the wealthy continued to export animals and grain. It contributed to the indifference of the British Raj, to the terrible Indian famines of the 1870s and 1890s, as well as those in China, which were triggered by El Nino events, but exacerbated by colonial policy and depredations on social infrastructure. It lurked in the unconscious of Winston Churchill during the 1943 Bengal famine, for his only interest seemed to be whether Gandhi had died yet. Neither has this died with the British Empire. Extreme environmentalists, both left and right, flirt with drastic global depopulation to save the planet by sacrificing the people, never themselves, of course. And in this current pandemic crisis, the three countries that have toyed with the idea of allowing natural herd immunity to emerge have recent eugenicist records. The United Kingdom until the 1940s, the Netherlands until the 1960s, and Sweden until the late 1970s. Only Sweden has actually taken this bridge too far, and their death rate from COVID-19 is 50 times ours in Australia. Economic historians now use the term Malthusian trap to characterise the long history of humanity before the Industrial Revolution, when the world was entirely dependent on current photosynthesis for its energy, what is known as the organic economy of wood and crops, which then fed animal and human muscle. What Malthus did not anticipate was the fossil energy revolution, where carbon stored from deep time could replace that grown in living time in forests and fields. Human societies could now become dramatically more productive with energy that short-circuited nature. But now we're suffering the consequences of contaminating the atmosphere with the detritus of the deep past. On the other hand, Malthus would not have approved of the eagerness of so many around the world to limit their families, and not just by abstinence, but by contraceptive technologies. However, while the world has largely curbed its fertility since World War II, in many places to below replacement levels, what we did not realise was that the humane desire to preserve life with new biomedical knowledge, that that meant cohorts of babies and children would now grow to survive to adulthood and in turn have their own babies. This has been the source of the world's population almost trebling in the lifetime of my generation of baby boomers. Fertility rates are falling everywhere except amongst the very poorest of the world, for whom another baby is the only investment they can make in their survival and care in old age. Perhaps this baby will survive and become a provided. As the great Jack Cordwall of the ANU first observed, development in poor countries depends on women and girls becoming literate and on the assistance of institutions that protect entitlements to food, shelter, health care and education. But the demographic genie is out of the bottle. Those young people of the developing world have to start their own families and even though they will decide most likely to have smaller families, they will still swell the global population to 9 or 10 billion before it can level off. But of course we still produce enough food for so many people. Yet as we all know, it's actually the distribution, the politics and the economics that's the problem. And it is the inequality of the world, both in rich, medium and poor nations, that creates ecological pressure points on land and water shortages 
that can unleash viral and bacteriological monsters, as well as war, extremism, intolerance and oppression. COVID-19 has become a great accelerator of the global ecological crisis we have created. All that will stand between us and disaster is good government. And with good government, we can live within our means. We can feed the world. We can care for the sick. We can educate all children, house all people, and nourish our social and cultural lives. Above all, with good government, we can take control of our future rather than permit great powers, dictators or corporations to profit from our helplessness and hopelessness. Therefore, it is important now to focus on what has to be done rather than on just what may go horribly wrong. It is vital that we all retain faith in our capacity to survive as individuals, families, communities, nations and as a species. And that in surviving, we will serve our fellow species and each other on the planet better than we have been doing for too long a time. But many young people feel deeply pessimistic about the future. They have little confidence that organised society can face profound threats, survive them and rebuild. Yet the world has done so, even within living memory, with the astonishing recovery in Europe and Asia after World War II. In 1945, Europe lay in ruins. 85 million people had perished, most of them civilians, deliberately murdered by industrial slaughter or burned alive in their torched villages or firebomb cities or intentionally starved to death. 60 million people were displaced and took to the roads to find somewhere safe. Polish Jews who went home to find if anyone had survived were attacked again and murdered. The total of lost or orphaned children has never been tallied. The poorest people in the world were in China. The 1944-45 winter had been terrible. Crops had not been planted and there was no food. Only the Russians seemed to know how to distribute food and to rebuild civil society. The other allies either had no resources or no experience. And for instance, in June 1945 in the American zone, the daily ration for normal civilians was 860 calories a day, a third of their rations during the war. Private life and civil society had been destroyed by oppression, torture, cruelty and hunger. Scarcely any civilian who survived occupation by the Nazis ended the war with a clear conscience. Good people had to kill, to steal, to lie, that to dob in their neighbours, fail to help when asked, fail to fight when needed. Violence was the currency of the civic and political life, and at the end people had nothing dispossessed of any property or capital they may have accumulated. They amounted to millions upon millions of destitute people all around the world. A friend's mother, who spent the war in Trieste, once admitted that there had been no human depravity that she had not witnessed during that time. Not only had the physical world been consumed by fire, so also had institutions, communities and reputations. Proud national cultures had been trashed. Yet out of the carnage, modern Europe and the Soviet Union rebuilt their cities and homes and their civil societies. China and Asian societies found freedom and rebuilt. If the EU now has problems, it has still been a miracle. Its leading states all have strong welfare systems. 
They've had reasonable political stability and have experienced a dramatic improvement in housing, health and standards of living in the past three quarters of a century. At the end of this crisis, things will be very bad for those with weak, corrupt and incompetent governments and for those of us who are rich, it will be our duty to help where we can. For those like us with good governments, there will be still a lot to do to start again and critical moral decisions will need to be made as to whether to rebuild positively or inflict austerity to recover the losses of capital. The deaths will be proportionately fewer than in World War II. The buildings won't all be smashed, nor the sewers, waters and gas pipes shattered. Physically, the world will still be there, shabby, dirty, but it still will be there, and the schools and hospitals ready to open for normal business. Farms will still be producing food, except where severe weather has destroyed crops. The shock and grief will be simply awful, and as I said in the opening of this talk, it could well be the defining historical moment in our lives for us all. The immediate danger for a developed economy like ours is that an awful lot of people will be suddenly poor, as they were in 1945. The path to be taken is a political choice, not an inescapable route dictated by one branch of economic theory or another. We have prospered since the great financial crash by shifting the load of debt onto people's credit cards and mortgages, but we have not repaired our economies and social institutions. It has not been the government that's had the problematic debts, but the people. Only middle class and rich retirees at the moment have any financial resilience and even they have seen their returns fall. Younger people, even on high incomes, are generally major debtors, paying off mortgages, the most affluent even committed to school fees. Many across the board will find themselves after the pandemic with no savings and even bigger debts, having lost their house through defaulting on their mortgage or mortgages if they have been indulging in negative gearing. Their credit cards will be maxed out. They will owe older family members large amounts and the chance of returning to earning a secure income that could enable them to recover will not happen overnight. The economy will not overnight flip back to normal. It will not be a V-curve dip and recovery. It will be a U-curve at best and an L-curve at worst. Hence, while government is stepping up to keep people and property and businesses afloat through the crisis, just as with the war, they cannot afford to switch off the tap as soon as the virus retreats. Again, we need to look at the past for guidance. Our first question is, how did the Allies pay for the war after the collective impoverishment of the Great Depression? John Maynard Keynes' 1940 book, How to Pay for the War, outlined a program of rationing war bonds and currency creation that created the funds without generating inflation. But the minute the war ended, 42% of the British workforce, for instance, was made redundant. Even more important, then, is how the Allies to pay for the peace without a return to the misery and chaos after World War I. Yes, rationing and austerity continued and people resented that, but governments did not stop spending. The new Labour government in the United Kingdom passed legislation mandating full employment. The existing Labour government in Australia in May 1945 just as the Nazis surrendered and before the war ended with Japan, issued its famous white paper written by Dr. H.C. Coombs. Its title was simply 
full employment in Australia. We preempted the British, but we were of like minds. Australia, by comparison, got off lightly with the Second World War, but Australia had arguably also the best government in its history and one of the best in the world under Prime Ministers Curtin and Chifley. They believed in the social contract that government existed to serve the people and their needs, that our Commonwealth was a political community formed for the common good. They were great internationalists. They prosecuted the war, but they also committed from 1942 to building a better Australia for peace. Shifley was recognised internationally as an outstanding treasurer. Their post-war reconstruction scheme in just four years of war and four years of peace established a welfare state and addressed historic injustices to Indigenous people who came under Commonwealth laws. They legislated to mandate full employment after the war, despite the demobilisation of the military and of war industries. In other words, what we would now call a jobs guarantee. And it worked. They reformed the economy from the factory to the farm. General Motors Holdens was nursed into production, and this time soldier settlements were better planned and more successful. They built infrastructure like the Snowy Mountain Scheme. They trained hundreds of thousands of previously unskilled workers to be skilled workers. They opened Australia to non-British migration, changing us forever. They lost office before they could implement Professor Sam Wadham's massive rural reconstruction scheme. But they also believed that the future depended on education and research. Establishing our first research university, the Australian National University, to be a Princeton in the Pacific. They inaugurated Commonwealth scholarships and research funding. Our first PhDs began to start their research and our academic gaze turned away from Oxbridge towards our Asian neighbours for the first time. They invested properly in CSIRO. They failed to do more about banking, but they did establish the Commonwealth Bank and take ownership of Qantas. Another term in office may have delivered us a National Health Service. We had to wait almost another 40 years for Medicare, but the four years after the war set up modern Australia and our post-war prosperity. I do recommend Stuart Magentire's magisterial Australia's Boldest Experiment for the best history of this remarkable period. This story is important to retell because it gives us hope and a model. We need national reconstruction again to transition to renewable energy to restore fairness and security to our economy, to rebuild our rural and regional sectors that are beset by poverty, environmental stress and long-time marginalisation. Climate change imperils our food security as it does our natural environment and wildlife. If we are to reconstruct Australia as a sustainable economy and society, then perhaps 60% of that effort needs to be in the bush. The pandemic has added a new layer to this need for national reconstruction. It has exposed our welfare net for the mean system it is. It has laid bare the dangers of insecure work, deunionisation and workplace deregulation. It has revealed the fragility of our economic structure, a fatal lack of complexity. Thank goodness for 3D printing. We cannot afford to be short like this again with little capacity to refine oil 
to make pharmaceuticals and produce medical equipment and essential technologies. National reconstruction, though, requires political will, and political will would do best with a measure of bipartisan support to be effective. This was relatively easy in the war, but in peace we can look to another Australian achievement, the accord struck between unions and employers under the leadership of the Hawke government. The architect of that accord, Professor John Langmore, now of the Melbourne School of Government, in 1983 was the young MHR for Fraser and the ACT. He later became a trenchant critic of the accord under Keating when it betrayed its principles and triggered unemployment and recession. But he still believes that the basic mechanism of the Cork Accord can be a model. It would require a summit, as before, after consultation and planning. It could be led by First Nations people with a mission to heal the land and heal the people, starting with constitutional recognition and the Uluru Statement from the Heart. But this time, the participants would be drawn from across the spectrum of the nation. Farmers, business big and small, unions, university and research, state and local governments, health and welfare sectors, culture and the arts. In the 1940s, the Curtin government recruited the best minds Australia had to offer, led by Dr H.C. Coombs. In 1983, the Cork government likewise drew on economic and scientific expertise outside the public service and its own advisers. Universities have played a vital role in changing course for this country in times of crisis and will do so again, just as our researchers, along with the CSIRO, are leading the fight against COVID-19. But the accord itself could be different from 1983, could just be a commitment to the guiding principles of the United Nations Sustainability Goals that connect social and economic justice to environmental justice. This accord would be a commitment to principles of practice that would open doors to funding, tax incentives, advice and collaboration between sectors to build a new sustainable economy, to turn Australia into the renewable energy powerhouse that Professor Ross Garneau envisages and reinstate renewable-powered industry in cities and in the regions. There need be no compulsion for anyone or businesses to sign on, but if they chose to be outside the tent when they wouldn't receive really any benefits and opportunities. Likewise, government's role is not to take the lead on every issue. It can't because it doesn't have the expertise to match that already in the community. Rather, it is to ensure that law and order prevail, that the rules are kept, that there's no corruption or favouritism. We have forgotten the power of the law to bring about social as well as judicial justice and that that is the role of government. But we are in danger of two things if the corporations alone take the lead on climate policy, that the funds will disproportionately swell the pockets of big companies, especially from overseas, and that the poor and the bush will be ignored along with all the other small players. No nation can truly flourish if its hinterland is degraded and unproductive. Global warming threatens our food security and, as we have seen this summer, our forests and native wildlife. National reconstruction needs not merely to be bipartisan at the top. It must offer genuine participation in decision-making in schemes to transition to new industries and farming technologies.
We may need to start growing some crops under cover in highly controlled environments with careful water use and no pesticides. If the Netherlands can become the world's second largest food exporter after the United States, then we too, with much more land in a more environmentally sensitive way than the Dutch find possible, build a high-tech food exporting industry that could over time replace coal. To do all this, we need partnerships between the private sector, government, university, farmers and in finance, such as industry super funds. If employers are to receive funding and research support from the public sector and its institutions, then as they're part of the accord, they must commit to providing secure jobs, vocational opportunities with apprenticeships and abide by OHS regulations. This is already happening in Victoria. They must be prepared to negotiate improving wages and support more generous welfare provision. Above all, they need to endorse a government-funded jobs guarantee to get people back into the workforce with dignity and security, that is, real jobs with award wages, not work for the dole. We hope that the pandemic will bring an end to the distrust of science and learning that neoliberalism has spread like poison through the rich world. It will be time to forgive student debts, perhaps, abolish fees, increase on-study and fund research infrastructure in universities, along with restoring the CSIRO and providing more job security for researchers. Our universities could then return to being servants of the public rather than reluctant semi-private corporations. As the Labour government knew in the 1940s, the future will be paved with education. How do we pay for this? I can hear you cry. All of this is fiscally possible if we accept that as we now have sovereignty over our currency, we cannot go broke as a nation and that investment in people and infrastructure pays long-term dividends. Artificially balancing the budget quickly via austerity only leads to further impoverishment. Investing in people and their enterprises to get on with it restores prosperity. Is this socialism? I'm not sure that question matters anymore. Business is part of society too, and this cannot be done without their expertise, their creativity and their resources. The private sector will be crucial to recovery and the Accord would be asking them to be good corporate citizens in return. It is certainly social democratic in that it puts people at the centre of the economy and the polity. It may need to include over time some collectivist practices such as the cooperatives that Australian farmers have long used to collect the capital to invest in technologies for sugar crushing and dairy production. This time the technology that could be for intensive high-tech farming that is sustainable with climate change. Our farmers are losing money. There is no profit at the farm gate and no surplus for employing labour at fair wages. At the same time, our population is suffering an epidemic of obesity and diabetes while finding fresh, nutritious food too expensive. Even before the pandemic, one in five Australians in this land of plenty has been going hungry every week. We may have to contemplate subsidising farmers to provide a nutritional floor for the nation as some developing countries have done successfully. This would be radical but necessary. But what is possible with the new accord is not precise prescriptions for economic reform, but rather a narrative 
or a vision that can capture the trust and enthusiasm of an electorate that is disenchanted with politics and politicians. People want leaders to come together, to put aside personality conflicts and focus group-driven ideas. Australia has a narrative of past successes at bringing the nation together, at drawing on the capacities of the people and finding a new path forward. We have seen in the past few weeks this happening with Sally McManus of the ACTU and Greg Combay working together with the Morrison government to protect workers as well as business. A Green New Deal is a top-down American idea. The United Kingdom wants a green industrial revolution, but we need to reform the bush. We in Australia need to strike accords, to establish principles of practice, to build institutionalised fairness and bring people together. We need to reconstruct Australia as we have done before. No one, no politician, no scientist, no economist, no bureaucrat, no business leader, no pundit has all the answers. But collectively we do, provided we can devolve consultation and much decision-making to the communities and regions directly affected. That will build resilience over time and through changes of government, and it will draw on the experience and knowledge of those who are experts in their own worlds. The great power of the human mind is that it can work and connect and interact with other minds. Our greatest strength lies in each other. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Disaster and Change. Tell a friend, write a review, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Great thanks again to our early career researcher, Henry Reese and our SHAPS Forum team leader, Nicole Davis, for their work in putting it together. Please contact Julie Fedor, the SHAPS Engagement Chair, or me, Margaret Cameron, Head of School, if you have any suggestions for topics you'd like to hear about. This podcast was produced by the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which our university operates. Lands of the Kulin peoples, which includes the Wurundjeri, Bunurong, Wadarong, Jajawarong, and Tongarong peoples, as well as the Yorta Yorta Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging, and acknowledge that sovereignty over these lands was never ceded.